Welcome to the Let's Talk Money and More podcast with me, Leslie Thomas. The aim of the podcast is to get us all talking about money more. Talking about money is still considered to be a taboo. We don't talk about money enough. Women don't talk about money enough. And that needs to stop. In this podcast, my guests and I talk about money, mindset, and how to turn around limiting beliefs, allowing you to develop a healthy, wealthy money mindset. Our relationship with money doesn't just affect our finances, but impacts every aspect of our business. And most of all, our own sense of self-value and self-worth. By mastering your mindset, you can in turn master the money you make in your business. Welcome to the latest episode of Let's Talk Money and More with me, Leslie Thomas. Today is another guest episode. Um, boy, oh boy, do I have a great guest for you again today. I would like to welcome Deb Morgan to the podcast. Deb is a professional coach, author, podcaster, and global speaker. Her vision is to help liberate women to break through the bondage of their past, to remove the masks of fear and shame that keep them hidden, shackled, and often playing small. Her clients live a life of unconditional love, abundance, and happiness by creating strong, healthy, and robust relationships. Her overriding mission is to reduce the prevalence of domestic abuse globally. And boy, am I looking forward to this conversation. So welcome to the show, Debs. It's absolutely brilliant to be able to have you here and to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be here. So as you know, I only ask or only plan one question to ask my, my guests, and that is, what is your money story? Oh my goodness, where to start? Well, I guess I have to start by saying, like many people, I've always had a love-hate relationship with money. There have been times where I've had plenty of it, times where I've had just enough of it, and times where I've been absolutely thoracic. And thankfully, those are few and far between, but they really shaped my money journey and my money mindset. So I was once asked what my first memory was around money. And I think I'll go from there as sort of the start of my story. I recall as a child watching my mother sit down, usually on a Friday night, and balance the books. My mum was a bank and building society manager. And in the days where they couldn't leave the office until they had balanced their books, she did the same at home. And before she started working full time, it was a very typical 1970s family setup. My father went out to work. Mum stayed at home with the kids and dad gave mum housekeeping every week. So she would make sure that she spent it on whatever. And then at the end of the week, she balanced the books for nobody else, but for herself. She didn't have to show my dad what she'd been spending or anything like that. So that was quite healthy. But I always watched her pick up and notice every single penny that was going in and out of our household. And as I got older and left home, of course, you learn the hard way how to budget properly for a household then. And my mum said to me, well, you need to balance your books and showed me how to do it. So for years, I would sit usually one day at the weekend and look at how much money had come in, how much had gone out, 
and how things were faring up. And if I had enough money to go out on a Saturday night, I would go out. And if I didn't, I'd stay in. Simple as that. So that was quite straightforward way to live. Then as I got older, I ended up, I got married and I've been married twice. Unfortunately, both times I was in abusive relationships and I had a third abusive relationship after that as well. And my first marriage, particularly, I ended up with a lot of debt, um, not only the cost of divorce, but he built up a lot of debt in my name, which I ended up clearing. Then I met my second husband, and that too was an abusive relationship. And when we got married, he was out of work, although he had worked previously. And I'd been left with the mortgage on a lovely big house, a sought-after location, and dealing with all of the bills. So I'd got used to, through my adult life to that stage, being the main breadwinner. So all of the responsibility fell on my shoulders. That was fine. I could manage it at the time. And it wasn't until I had my son, who is now 17, that I realized I really didn't want to work anymore. I wanted to have my cake and eat it. I wanted mm. to be a part-time mom and work part-time if I could. But that wasn't going to pay the bills. My husband was still out of work at the time as well. And one day, having been forced to go back to work early off maternity leave when my son was just 11 weeks old, mm. um, they had reneged on what they had promised me on maternity. And because it hadn't been written down in a contract anywhere, I didn't have a leg to stand on, despite being verbally assured that they weren't going to reduce my salary in any way. So I had to go back to work because the maternity pay and the statutory maternity pay just wasn't even meeting our mortgage, let alone anything else. Going back to work, Every single day, I would leave the house in tears. I would get halfway to the office, drive around a roundabout, drive back home in tears, say, I can't do it. And my husband would say, but you have to. You're the only income. You have to go to work. Over time, you can imagine the resentment grew. Yeah. And one day, I ended up having a falling out with my boss. And he said to me in the heat of the oven, well, I'm not happy. And I said, okay, if you're not happy, I'll give you something to be unhappy about. Here's my keys. I'm going. And I left. I walked out. At that point, I had a three-month-old baby, an unemployed husband, an awful lot of debt starting to rack up because he'd been out of work. And now I had no job. Ooh. And I arrived home and my husband said to me, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I'll just get on the phone and see if anybody needs some typing doing. Because up until that point, I'd been a corporate PA. Mm. So the following day, I did, as I said, I was going to do and just got on the phone, you know, networking the old fashioned way. You picked up the phone and asked people you knew, do you know anybody that needs this, that and the other? Those and that's the what I did. And I was fortunate to pick up a client who had been somebody I'd worked with previously. They'd employed me as their PA. And he said, yeah, I need, I've got some work I need doing, Deb. You can help me. But let's go out for dinner and we'll have a chat. And we'd often go out for lunch anyway. So that was no problem. And we had a chat and I said, I'm going to set this up as a business. So I set up my first business and I happened to become one of the UK's first virtual assistants. We're talking 17 years ago. Um, there weren't very many of us around then. And I became an industry leading VA practice because at the time, nobody else was directly employing staff. And my business, I was fortunate the business grew very, very quickly. I had to take on staff. And ultimately, I ended up with a team of, I think there were eight of us all told. Amazing. But I'd also taken my husband on as an employee because, as he said, and I had to agree with him with this, I was the face of the business. I needed to be the one out there doing the networking, doing the selling. 
But I also needed somebody in the office who would answer the phone, deal with the emails, those sorts of things. So whilst it was in the very early stages, he took on that role almost as the operations director. And I became sales and marketing. But I was also coming home and actually doing the work as well, because whilst he was great at managing what was going on, he couldn't do the work to the level I could mm. and at the rate that I was being, I was charging for it. So that very much became a pattern. And over time, we took on, we, I, it was my business. I was the sole shareholder. Um, I took on a team of staff. My son was getting older and I was seeing less and less of my son, desperately unhappy, but the future looked bright. The business was looking well. We had a strong forward order book. Until New Year's Eve 2008, when I logged in to make my, to pay my team's salaries and I was at home, it was New Year's Eve, and I always paid them on the last day of the month. And at that time of the year, I'd said to them, do you want me to pay you before Christmas or do you want me to pay you on the last day of the month? As usual. And they all said, actually, last day of the month, please, Deb, because it means January is not going to be so long. I logged on to pay them and noticed that there wasn't enough money in the company bank account to pay my team. I knew enough about business at that point to know that my business was technically insolvent. Couldn't get hold of my accountant. In fact, it's New Year's Eve. I couldn't get hold of very many people at all. Googled insolvency practitioners and managed to find somebody who answered the phone. And they said to me, they confirmed my worst fears. Yes, your business is insolvent and you need to take make your team redundant with immediate effect and no pay. Oh, my goodness. And that... Exactly as you just said, oh my goodness, I just felt as if I'd been punched in the stomach. The world stopped turning for me at that point. And I must have screamed or yelled or something because my home office was upstairs and my husband came rushing up the stairs and says, what's the matter? And I explained what had just happened. And I said, just put your arms around me and tell me everything's going to be okay. And he stood with his back against the wall and he said, I can't because I don't know it will. And at that point, I realized that my marriage was also over and I was very much on my own. And then he started to lay into me verbally about what on earth did I think I was doing anyway? Everybody was laughing at me. Everybody knew I didn't know what I was doing when it oh, came to my. business. Who the heck did I think I was to think that I could make any money out of this? And all of those awful things that, you know, in my I took no responsibility days. himself. He took oh, no responsibility. No responsibility. Yeah. And that's the irony because after that, I took the company through insolvency. I made my team redundant, which everything else I've been through in my life, that was the worst day of my life, mm. hands down. And I then had to go through personal bankruptcy. So I went through that. I then tried to get myself a job because I still needed to keep some sort of a roof over my head. And I managed to get a job from one of my former clients and lost that job because I refused to sleep with the client, then got another job and was made redundant. And the same happened again. Uh, next job I got, I was also made redundant. All of this was going on whilst I was filing for divorce. And because I had nowhere to live, I had left my husband and my son with him thinking, I will go back and get my son whilst when I've got myself sorted. But for now, I know he's safe. He's got a roof over his head. He's looked after. When I went back to get my son, my husband said, he's going to live with you over my dead body. And that started a 10-year legal battle, not just for residency of my son, but to be identified as his primary carer. 
And I said that this was an abusive relationship. And what I learned over the years is that he'd actually sabotaged my business from within. Uh, when I was out of the office, he would say to the team, don't listen to Deb. She doesn't know what she's doing. That's not the conversation we had last night. She wants us to do X, Y, and Z. He developed an extra branch or an extra arm of the business because he was uncomfortable with the market I was targeting. Um, I was working with executives, chairman, non-exec directors, et cetera, because that's the level I'd always worked at. And I knew what I was doing. I knew there was a niche for it. He wasn't comfortable working or networking at that level, so decided he would open up a branch of the business that catered solely to tradespeople. And yes, tradespeople have a requirement for administrative support, but that wasn't what we were doing. Yeah, it wasn't your niche. Yeah, Exactly. Mm. He had the whole team focus on that rather than on our executive clients. And when we were networking, I would sit down with the team and say, right, this week, this is the message. This is what we're putting out there. Always, always communicated everything with my team. This is the messaging. This is what we need to be pushing, et cetera, et cetera. And I had my team go out to a number of different networking events so that we could be everywhere. And we were. People used to say, well, it's not a networking event if Deb's business isn't there. And what I discovered was he was going to networking events and telling something, saying something completely different, marketing something completely different, and really bringing the brand and the image of the business down. And obviously, I learned all this after the event. Unbelievable. So when I spoke to clients some months and in some instances, years after the business going through. So what happened? And they said, well, we were so confused with what was going on in your business. We weren't sure if you were even going to keep in business anymore. We decided that we'd keep the money in our bank account rather than pay you and just wait and see how the business was going. And I tried to contact my clients in the sort of week after New Year Lots of them weren't available. And of course, I was ringing them to say the business is insolvent. So actually, we can't do your work anymore. So they didn't feel that they owed me an explanation. And at that stage, I had too many other things to worry about than to say to them why. Um, It was something I asked years later, as I've said. And that's the answer I got. And I'd hired um, an outsourced marketing director for the business. And she approached me afterwards and she said, Look, we've become really good friends. And I might lose your friendship over this, but you need to know what was happening in your business. And he's sabotaging it from within. I've been sat in your office and I've heard him say the exact opposite of everything you've instructed your team to do. And because I was in an abusive relationship and it was psychologically abusive, so very, very manipulative, he was using the same tactics on the team and they were scared of him. Mm. So... You know, part of me holds my hand up. I have to take responsibility for it. I brought him into the business and I trusted him to deliver what I wanted. Um, but I don't hold, I don't take responsibility for his actions. Mm. I take responsibility for mine and I absolutely take responsibility for the business going into insolvency because I should have noticed it. I should have been on the ball, but you know what? We can live in should, would, could, hindsight, forever. yeah. And, you know, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't serve you. But for a long, long time, it really, really damaged me quite significantly. And about 18 months after all of this, all of this took place in an 18-month period. And about 18 months after that, I'd just been made redundant again, months after having secured a lovely apartment. And I sat there and I thought, I can't make the rent. I've used what little savings I've managed to accrue in 
paying bills and paying my rent to date. And because I was in bankruptcy, I couldn't save an awful lot anyway. I was allowed enough for my day-to-day expenses. But, you know, you've given £20 a month for your hair to get your hair cut. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't get my hair cut for £20 a month. I couldn't then and I can't now. No, absolutely not. So this is is how stringently they look at your finances. Well, can you cut this? Can you cut that? Why do you need a mobile phone? Hello, I need a mobile phone. I'm trying to get myself back on my feet. I don't have a landline. These are all the things they ask you. So really make you feel just for living that you are demanding and asking too much. So I'd got to this stage where I looking at the money I had there. I thought my rent is due. I can't pay it. It was no, it was a November, November 2010. And I thought, I can't even afford to buy my son Christmas presents. And he was five that year. And I was ended up buying his Christmas presents from charity shops and off free cycle. Even eBay at times was too expensive. And I felt so worthless. And as if I was such a failure, I'd failed at both my marriages. I'd failed at business. I'd failed at being a mum. I'd failed to keep a job. I'd failed at everything. So I decided I was going to take my own life. Oh, my goodness. And then when I failed at that as well, I absolutely thought this is ridiculous. You know what? That's it. You are absolutely worthless. My confidence was through the floor. My self-esteem was through the floor. But the one thing that I knew I had that people wanted was this, my body. And I gathered up all of the business knowledge I'd accrued to date and thought, okay, you've got one thing for it. You need to start selling your body. And I became an independent escort. And I went into it with an objective. I wanted to make enough money to pay my rent for a year, enough money that I could live for a year, and I could buy my son some new presents. That was it. When I hit those objectives, and thankfully, I hit them quite quickly, I'd decided in business that I wasn't going to give it away at low value. It wasn't going to be low cost, high volume. It was going to be high cost, low volume. And I stuck by that religiously. So, in a very short space of time, I was able to pay my rent in in advance for a year and put enough money in the bank, the equivalent of a year's salary, basically. Mm -hmm. And then I came out of the industry. I'd met somebody else, came out of the industry. But that person I'd met, I'd met classic pretty woman moment. They were a client, wealthy man. He was a banker. And he decided he was going to give me an allowance every month, which sounds ideal. How many of us as women have sat there and thought, oh, I'd love to be a kept woman. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, let me tell you, the reality is nowhere near as fantastic as the fantasy of Mm. that is. And whilst I was able to spend the money on anything I wanted, and he didn't question what I spent it on, I had to give him a full breakdown every month of exactly where every single penny had gone. Controlling. Yeah. Totally controlling. Mm. And what it meant is that even though very early on, I knew that I wasn't happy in this relationship. I had no way of saving to get out of it. I couldn't save for deposit on a on a flat or anything like that. So I was pretty much stuck. But what happened then when I realized, okay, I'm stuck. And I kind of thought, well, you've made your bed, you've got to lie in it. And started questioning, I wonder if all of these people out there who seem to have have the life, because I had a fantastic lifestyle with that man, fantastic house. We had, I had a great car, nice wardrobe. We would eat out a lot. We went to lovely events. 
So I was really, really fortunate in that respect. And I started thinking, well, maybe when people say they have the perfect life and perfect marriage, this is it. Perhaps you can't have it all. So I thought, well, okay, if this is what it's to be, it's a nice lifestyle. You just got to, as I said, make your bed and lie in it. And I thought, I don't need to work. I've got an allowance. Maybe now is the time to start pursuing what I always really wanted to do. And my lifelong dream had been to become a professional actor. And I had been acting on an amateur and semi-pro basis since the age of about 13 or 14. I had a really good reputation locally. And I thought, I'm going to see if I can just put myself out there. So I created a CV of everything that I had performed in up until that point and started sending it out and applying to open auditions. And I got cast in a touring production of a play, which was touring South Wales and the southwest of England. And I then became the poster girl. It wasn't a very glamorous poster girl, far from it. Um, But I was the poster girl nonetheless, and my face was on the poster. And what happened was somebody recognised my face on the poster in a local theatre and asked the box office manager if I was who they thought I was. And the box office manager took a look at the poster and said, do you know what? I think you're right. She used to be in a theatre group with my daughters when she was a teenager. Oh, small I'll find out. Now, bear yeah. in mind, I had grown up in Cardiff and this was a theatre in Western Supermare. Um, but it transpired, yes, it was me. And the person who'd been inquiring about me was the love of my life, who I had met in between Husbands 1 and 2. We had dated briefly. Then he had gone off to university as a mature student and I'd gone to live and work in London. And these were the days before everybody had mobile phones and you'd queue at the phone box down the street or whatever it was. No Facebook. No, no Facebook at all. You know, just a long distance relationship. So it just fizzled out. There was no big falling out or anything, but I was heartbroken. I knew he was the love of my life. And even when I met my second husband, even when we got married and when I had my son, there wasn't a day that went by where I didn't wonder what this other man was doing. And I thought, well, you know what? The last I'd heard, he was in Canada, living and working in Canada with his then girlfriend. So I thought, you know what? Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved Mm -hmm. at all. But it always stuck with me. So when he found me, he then messaged me on Facebook and said, hi, it's me. Remember me? How are you? How's the family? It was really just a catch up like you would catch up with old school friends. Nothing romantic in it at all, because he didn't know if I was married, if I was single. Likewise, I didn't know with him. And we arranged to meet during the rehearsal period. We met for a coffee, middle of the day in the middle of Bristol. And the moment I saw him, all those old feelings were there. And you might wonder, what has this got to do with my money journey? And I'm going to get to that now. So, I'm loving this story. <laughs> the twists and turns are fascinating. Oh, it's, it's, incredible. it's yeah. incredible. You couldn't make it up. It has to be real. You can't make it up. And I'd met him for coffee, realised all the old feelings were there and knew without doubt that I would have to leave my relationship. Didn't know what I was doing or what I was going to do, but knew I couldn't stay in the relationship. It wasn't fair to the person I was in, I was with, even though I wasn't happy, it wasn't fair to him. And in all essence. He, he was a decent man. He, he thought he was looking after me by managing my money and controlling it that way. Um, but, you know, realistically, he wasn't, but that's what he thought. And he's, he's a good man, ostensibly. I still say that now. But I got home from rehearsal and the following day was opening night. And I think I remember being in the kitchen. We had a farmhouse. And I was in the kitchen and he came rushing into the kitchen. He said to me, who the F is this person? I said, what do you mean? 
who the F is this that's been messaging you on Facebook? I said, oh, I'll tell you who that is now. But I said, let me sort my son out because my son used to stay with me every weekend. He was still in the middle of a legal battle at that stage. She said, let me sort my son out. We'll have this conversation when he's not here or when he's in bed or whatever. I said, but, you know, there's nothing to worry about. But he went absolutely ballistic and at one point locked me outside the house. My son was inside the house. So I stood and screamed until he came out and said, stop screaming. The neighbours will wonder what's going on. I said, well, until you let me back in the house with my son, I will stand here and I will scream. Mm -hmm. So he let me back in. Then he locked my son and I in my son's bedroom, confiscated my car keys and my mobile phone. But thankfully, my son had a mobile phone, which I wasn't aware of. His father had given him a mobile phone so that he didn't have to speak to our son via me. I ring my mobile and then speak to our son. Mm. I don't want her involved. I'll speak to you directly. And my son would have been five or six at this time. So my son said, mum, I've got a phone. Please don't shout. Dad gave it to me. But if you need to use it, you can. And I thought, well, I can't really ring his dad because we weren't on good terms anyway. And he would have gone absolutely mental if I'd rung him and said, look, this is going on. I need your help. And I didn't want to ring my parents because they were elderly and they'd been through so much with me. They'd been so supportive of me that I can't bring this to their doorstep now. So I rang the only person who I believed would help me without judgment. So I phoned up this person I'd been messaging and I said, I really need your help. Explained what had happened. And he's right. I'll be there. It's going to take me about two hours to get to you, but I'm on my way. Wow. So he came across, arrived on the doorstep looked at my partner and said, I know you want to punch me, but right now there's a scared little boy and his mum there. We need to get them to his grandparents. I'm going to do that. Then I'll come back and then you and I can talk. And that happened. We went back, talked. And the person I was living with said, well, you're going to make a choice. It's me or him. And I said, well, it's got to be him. And he looked like all the stuff had been knocked out of him in fairness. And I said, you don't get a second chance like this very often. And whether it lasts two days, two weeks, two months or two years, I have to take that chance. Because if I don't, I will be here with you constantly wondering what if. And that's Mm. not fair on you either. So that day I left. Three weeks later, I moved to Western Supermare, which is where I now live, and have been with my partner ever since. That We're talking nine years this year. But in amongst all of that... I was still dealing with a whole load of money issues. Mm. I'd had no job. I'd had an allowance. My new partner wasn't in a position to give me an allowance. I needed to get a job. I was also paying hand over fist for legal fees because I was still embroiled in a legal battle to get my son to live with me. So I had to find a job and I did. It wasn't well paid, but it was enough to pay the debts, pay the ongoing legal fees and make a small contribution to the house. Now, over the years, thankfully, things have sorted themselves out. Four years ago, no, five years ago this year, my son came to live with me as a result of two legal battles that lasted 10 years in total. But he's been living with me ever since. He's now a strapping 17-year-old who towers over me. But he's very, very happy. I'm still paying the debts from those legal battles. And I managed to find myself a job which not only paid me a rate that I believed I deserved, it enabled me to give my son a private education, which 
I'd always promised my son the moment he was born, I remember lying him in my lap and saying, I'm going to give you the best of absolutely everything I can. and I'm going to make sure you have a private education. And that was important to me. Mm. I know it's not important to everybody. That was important to me. And the job I had got was working in a private school because I couldn't have afforded the fees on my salary. But with the massive staff discount I got, I could afford the fees, which was still the equivalent of paying a large mortgage. But I could afford it and give that to my son. And gradually over the years, my pension had been taken with the bankruptcy because the law back then was that they seized your pension as well. So I was 40, I think 44 years old before I was able to start my pension. Mm. And I'm now 50. I've got a nice little pension pot building up. I've got savings in place. I got made redundant from that job, funnily enough, two two years ago, just over two years ago as part of the pandemic. But I haven't looked back since because my partner and I have always been very open about money. He knew what the situation was. And I moved in to his, uh, then it was his flat with him. So he said, well, I know I can afford this flat comfortably and I can afford to live. So we had the conversations over what my contribution should be. And when we moved and bought the house we are now in, those conversations came up again, right? What what can you afford? What's the what's the balance here? What's the split going to be? And of course, I've got to the stage where the debts are becoming less and less. So I have more disposable income. I'm putting more money into a pension. I'm putting more into savings. And over time, all of those horrors of, you know, 10, 15 years ago are gradually becoming forgotten. Mm. But I'll never forget how it made me feel not to have money, how it made me feel to be sitting there looking at coppers and thinking, I've got enough money for a loaf of bread and a tin of beans or living for a week on porridge because that's all I could afford when my son wasn't with me. And I never, ever assume what somebody's financial status is these days. Like you, I'm a coach. I'm now a relationships and sex coach. Um, But I never make an assumption of whether somebody can afford me or not, yeah. because we never know what's going on behind closed doors. Absolutely. And you know, back then, I had a fantastic lifestyle with my second husband. I lived in a fantastic house in a sought-after area, had a successful business and a high profile, but I was absolutely broke with the person I then met after I'd been in the sex industry. You know, again, I had the lifestyle. I had the best wardrobe I ever had in my life. Had a fantastic car, all of those sorts of things, but I was desperately unhappy. So, what I've learned, if nothing else, is about not to make assumptions. And to this day, my partner knows I have a savings pot. And even when I say, no, we can't go there, I haven't got the money for it, he knows that my priorities now are for my pension, my savings, obviously the bills that need to be paid. So, I make my contribution to the house and everything else. Then it's the pension, then it's the savings pot. And obviously, I pay my debts off. But if I say I don't have the money for it, he never pushes it. He mm. never makes me feel stupid for it. He never belittles me for it. He just accepts, actually, this is the way it has to be. And there is a plan in place. The debts will be cleared in the next 18 months or so, I think. Um, so we know that our three to five year plan means all of a sudden I will be able to absolutely become his financial equal again, which is where I should be realistically. But the choices I've made in the past have led me to where I am now. And if I hadn't had those experiences, 
I wouldn't have the knowledge and the insight to have made the choices that I've Mm. made in the last nine years, because those are the choices that have put me in a position where I feel comfortable financially, because I know I can afford everything that needs to be paid and the lifestyle that I have. Yes, there's other things I aspire to and that I want more of, but I know they're coming. I've put a plan in place to achieve them. And more importantly as well, I've got my partner on board with the plan and we have our plan as well as our individual plans. Mm -hmm. We have our plans and it is all about communicating. I'm sure you have these conversations a lot. I know I certainly do when I'm working with couples. Communication is key. Absolutely, yeah. And whilst I learned a lot about money in this relationship, I also learned how to be loved completely unconditionally. And that was something that I'd never had before. And it's it's wonderful. It always makes me laugh when my partner says to me, I've never known anyone who can manage money as well as you can, Deb. And I said, what do you mean? That's crazy. You know, I've been, I've been in debt for nearly all my adult life. I've been bankrupt. How can you say I can manage money? He said, because we never, ever go without. And your son never goes without. And he said, I have no idea how you make that happen, but you do. And as far as I'm concerned, you're the best at managing money. Mm. Nobody had ever said that to me before. <sighs> how does and that so make you feel? It's, it's incredible. I, yeah. I sometimes get quite emotional by it because I think, actually, I'm rubbish at managing money. But then when I sit back and think, just six years ago, I didn't have a pension. And now I look at it, you know, I've got a brilliant financial advisor on board. But I talk about it and I say, actually, this is where, I, and even with my son, I'll say to him, okay, sweetheart, this is the budget. What do, you, what do you need this month? And he's in drama college at the moment, sixth form drama college. There's always new shoes or bits of equipment or theater tickets that need buying. And I make sure I, I've set up a pot in my account. You know, these online accounts are, they are fantastic. Starling by any chance? It's Monzo, actually. Ah, so it's very similar. Yeah, very similar. Yeah, set up the pots. Yeah. So my savings pot, I have a pot for charity. I still manage to give to charity as well, which has always been important to me and I couldn't do for such a long time. And I don't give a lot, but I give what I can afford. Yeah. And the way it makes you feel when I can say I can do the things I've always wanted to do. And there's other things, say a spa weekend or something. For some people, that's a drop in the ocean. If I want a spa weekend, I save up for it. It's a special treat. Well, I know not that far into the future, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. And I've learned so much more about money through having the debt, through going through bankruptcy, than I ever would have learned otherwise. And I look at the adversity I've had in my life. People say, how, you know, how have you bounced back from all of that? And these days, I don't recognize the woman that I was back then. That you know, I was heavily depressed in a very, very different place to where I'm at now. But without those experiences, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I wouldn't have the life I've got now. So I've got to be grateful for them. So would you then, would you change any of it? There are some things I would change, and I often think, oh, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have married my first husband because I'd actually been offered a place at RADA wow. at the time. And I was 19 years old, and I thought, I can't go to London for three years and leave him. So I'll decline the place at RADA and I'll go and get married. So if I'd known then what I know now, um, I might have done things differently. But then at the same time, I look at it and I think, actually, no, because that pathway put me on the path to the love of my life. I wouldn't have a fantastic son if I hadn't had the pathway I'd had. So whilst, yeah, well, yes, there are things I would change, things I might have done differently. Overall, I'm so happy with the life I have that if I changed any of it, it wouldn't get me to have got me to where I am now. 
and that I wouldn't change. Yeah. And do you think that is one of the reasons why you now are happy and content and feeling as though you are where you need to be because you recognize you had to go through those things as uncomfortable as they must have been, you had to go through them to be where you are now. Absolutely. You know, I've seen both sides of the coin. And there's the saying, the grass is always greener on the other side. Very often it isn't, or sometimes you think it is, and then find out once you're on that side that it isn't. And it takes a long time to walk through that field to find the lush green grass that you really want. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely where I am now because of the experiences I had. Yeah. And as far as 50-year-old Deb is concerned mm-hmm. now, what would she say to her younger self, having learned what you've learned along the way? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think it would be, be true to yourself and listen to your gut instinct um, all the way along. I've written a couple of books about my experiences all the way along. When I ignored my gut instinct, that's when the proverbial hit the fan. Isn't that fascinating? The amount of people I've spoken to about this and said, you know, when we ignore our gut instinct, has there ever been a time when we have said, thank God I ignored it? And I don't think, yeah, (laughs) which is fascinating. Mm. So given everything you've gone through, so you've gone through um, abusive relationships, you've gone through bankruptcy, you've gone through having to become an escort, you've gone through having to fight for your son. For anybody who's listening to this at the moment, what would you say to them in terms of finding that inner strength to deal with all of that and to get to the point that you're at now? I think it's about knowing what it is you're striving for. And there was a time, around about the time where I took an overdose, where I really didn't want to live. And after failing at that, as I said, I realized that nobody was going to help me. Nobody was going to do the work for me. If I wanted things to change, I had to be responsible for it and I had to make them change. And that was really hard. And it's, I, I actually wrote out the process that I used because it's not something I got from a book particularly, but it's, I've now written it in my own book and it's something I share in my own coaching was if you think there's something you want to do and you want to achieve, do one small thing every single day that's going to get you closer to it. And back then at that stage, I I wouldn't leave my flat. I'd spent three weeks living on the floor of my flat, not washing, not changing my clothes. I was, I must have stunk, quite frankly. And one day I realized that nobody else was going to change things for me. It had to be me, but I was too scared to go outside. So I broke it down and day one, I thought, right, okay, just go and have a shower. And I had a shower and I put my old dirty clothes back on because that was where I was comfortable at that point. The next day I had a shower and I put some fresh clothes on. The next day, shower, fresh clothes and some lipstick. The next day I went and stood on my front doorstep with a cup of tea in my hand, only for a matter of minutes, but realized, okay, I quite like the way the fresh air felt when it hit my face, quite like the smell of the fresh air. And guess what? I didn't drop dead. So the next day, it was a case of walking about 10 meters away from the front door and back. So I built that up gradually, really, really slowly over time until I felt strong enough, brave enough, and deserving enough of being back out there in public, of 
just walking down the street and people seeing me. So it took a long time, but that's a process which I now apply, as I said, to my coaching. And it, whatever you want to achieve, just do one tiny thing every single day towards it, like the compound interest effect, yeah. because one tiny step isn't going to make a difference on its own. But at the end of the month, if you've got 30 tiny steps, that's going to have created quite a big change. Yeah. At the end of a year, that change is going to be massive. Absolutely. And that's what I work towards because we always expect too much of ourselves in too short a space of time. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, totally. And I and I think as well, you know, we know that, you know, our that little voice in our head, you know, our subconscious is trying to keep us safe. It'll give Absolutely. us that negative, that negative conversation to stop us from moving forward. But if we're taking little steps and almost keeping that subconscious not even aware we're taking those little steps, what we're actually doing is creating that evidence and that that the compound interest of evidence that all of a sudden our our subconscious will go, so what what? When did that exactly. happen? How did exactly. you manage to do that? So I think that's a really, really sensible process to go through. So you're not having to not only resist change, you're not having to fight your subconscious that's trying to get you to not change as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's really, really good. So as far as your relationship with money is concerned today, what does that relationship look like? Oh, my goodness. It's it's quite wonderful. You know, it, it, it's great. It's daft things. It's the silly things now. But I have enough money. Um, I'm going on holiday on Sunday. We go narrowboating and I can't wait. But of course, you know, it's coming up to Valentine's Day. Yeah. So I said, well, we can't guarantee we'll get a place to eat in a pub because we always try and moor up near a pub or a restaurant of an evening to eat. Just tell you what I'll do. I'll go to Marks and Spencer's and get the two dine-in offer and we'll have that. And it's, it is silly things like that. Being able to pop to Marks and Spencer's and buy a meal rather than saying, I've only got enough money for Aldi or Asda or Lidl's and be, you know, knowing I can do that without feeling any guilt. These days, I don't have guilt around money. For a very long time, I wouldn't spend any money because I felt guilty about it. I thought if I spend it, I'm going to lose it all because I'm no good with money. That was the messaging that I was dealing with. I've done an awful, awful lot of work on my money mindset, a lot of work on how good money can be for you. And now recognize that I've earned it. I deserve it. And I'm allowed to spend it in ways that I want to spend it when everything else is covered, which it is, then I can spend it. And it might be little things like, actually, I fancy a new lipstick. I'm going to buy a new lipstick. I want to go to the hairdressers. Well, I can book and have my hair done in the salon rather than doing it myself at home. So it's all of those little things. You know, that's, that's what money is for me now. It enables me to do the things that bring me joy. Yeah. And I, and you can see that looking at you. You can see in your whole demeanor the Mm. journey that you've been on and how proud you are of where you are now. The last question I want to ask you, taking you slightly forward in the future, and you've already Mm. mentioned this, how are you going to celebrate when you've finally paid off those debts? Oh my goodness, that's a good one. I don't know because there's so many things I want to do. I might buy a box at the theatre and go and see something. It might be a really good bottle of champagne and a slap at meal because I love champagne. I'm not, I I enjoy Prosecco, but I'm not a big fan of Prosecco, champagne. Mm. So it might be that. 
Um, it might be a new pair of really good shoes. I have a penchant for designer shoes. I always used to. Came in well when I needed to sell them all to pay debts off previously. So uh, that works. So I, I don't know is the answer. I haven't really thought. Um, it might just be a great big family holiday. You yeah. know, it's there's so many ways I could celebrate. And actually, with the amount that I pay off, I could do all of it. So. <laughs> Which isn't that a nice realisation to have? Oh, it's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's almost, I have to be conscious of not wishing the, the years away. Say, oh, look, you know, in 18 months, we can do this and we can do that. I, no, let's, but I want to enjoy the present as well because yeah. we have such a fantastic present. Absolutely. But I don't want to wish it away, but it's nice to know that I can now plan for those things yeah. in the future. Whereas just a few short years ago, they were absolute pipe dreams. Didn't seem possible. No. If somebody, if somebody had said to me, Deb, you, you're going to have a thousand pounds or it's going to only going to cost you a thousand pounds. They might as well have said to me, it's going to cost you a million pounds. Yeah. You know, and now it seems achievable. Which is fantastic. Mm. Do you know what I've learned during this conversation, Deb, is we have so much in common. So first of all, obviously we're Welsh. Mm-hmm. I was heavily into Amdram and still was until the pandemic. Um, I love champagne. I love designer shoes. And also I love my narrowboat holidays. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So how can people connect with you? Well, they can connect with me predominantly through my website, which is www.deb-morgan.com. Or they can find me on social media and I'm on all of the platforms. I'm not on TikTok yet. I haven't ventured that far. But if you just look for Deb Morgan Coach, you'll find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest. Perfect. And for everybody, all those details will be in the show notes so they'll be able to easily find you as well. Well, thank you very much. This has been an absolutely brilliant conversation. You have one heck of a life story. (laughs) And I'm so glad that you have found your Prince Charming and you are now living the life that you wanted to live, having gone through all that you have gone through until now so thank you very much for your time today i've really enjoyed speaking to you thank you leslie take care thank you for listening to the let's talk money and more podcast if you have enjoyed it i would love it if you would tell somebody else about it you don't have to leave a review or write a post on social media tagging me leslie thomas coaching on instagram or the money mastery business coach on facebook but if you do I promise I will give you a shout out in a future episode and I will be hugely grateful. I can also be found at Leslie-Thomas on LinkedIn. If you would like a copy of my free resource, Three Mindset Shifts to Double Your Income, then please go to leslieathomas.com forward slash let's hyphen talk hyphen money. I would love to hear from you, so please do email me at leslie at leslieathomas.com. I will reply to all messages, but please do be patient. Until next time, remember, master your mindset and in turn, you can master the money you make in your business.